Welcome to the Advent Sermons and Conversations podcast. This is the Sermons Half. The sermon was given by Deacon Ross Murray on Sunday, July 15th, 2018. You can find the readings for this week in the podcast description. I don't know if any of you remember those bracelets that got popular in the mid-1990s that had WWJD written on them. I feel like they were really big during my, like, late high school, college years, so like the 90s. Um, and the WWJD was this acronym that stood for what would Jesus do? It was a phrase that was designed to remind the wearer to try to act in a way that personifies Jesus' teaching and Jesus' actions um, as we learn about them in the Gospels. Uh, and it was intended to help inform what we do, our decision-making. And I'm sure that these bracelets had their roots in evangelical Christianity and the ways in which we were called to emulate Jesus probably closely aligned with a conservative evangelical theology. But more recently, some of my more cheeky Christian friends have reminded us that a very legitimate answer to the question, what would Jesus do, is to start flipping over tables when we need to. But Jesus doesn't really appear in our scripture today. Instead, we hear about Amos and John the Baptist two equally disruptive voices. They are messing up the status quo, they are not being polite, and they are speaking the word of God to leaders and sometimes to an entire nation that doesn't want to hear it. And it is hard to read these stories from Amos and the Gospel of Mark and not draw comparisons or parallels between those stories and our own life and our own times. I know that there are many of us that have been trying to figure out what to do in these days of children separated from parents, increasing income inequality, a lack of affordable or accessible health care, people being treated more like products than consumers, and growing discrimination and violence against anyone who seems too much other because of their race, their country of origin, their gender identity, their sexual orientation, their ability, their religion, or any other factor. When we're trying to figure out how to live as faithful Christians in this day and age, it's hard, especially when so much visible Christianity seems to be wrapped up in an American empire. Are we being too loud? Are we being too quiet? Are we doing enough? Are we not doing enough? Do we need to start flipping over some tables? What is the line between civility and standing idly by while people are being harmed? Amos and John the Baptist are facing that same dilemma. Both Amos and John are unwelcome messengers. They're prophets who challenge the political and religious leaders, calling them to justice, and neither one was well received. Both were treated like a threat to the established order. Neither one had what we would call civility. They were crying out about injustice whenever or wherever or however they could. And both probably heard some ancient version of, can't you just stay away from politics and preach from the Bible? Maybe you've heard a phrase like that. I am sure our pastoral staff here has. I know I have in this very sanctuary. The problem is the Bible is political. These stories are political. The gospel is political. Jesus is political. And Amos and John are both political. The prophet Amos from our first reading certainly heard a phrase like that. He wasn't supposed to be this vocal. Amos was called to prophesy at a time of prosperity for Israel. 
The dominant narrative when he began speaking out was that things were good for the Israelites. The borders were secure. People were getting richer. King Jeroboam had made Israel great again. And then along comes Amos, this simple farmer from the south, proclaiming God's judgment against the nation of Israel and against the king directly. This is what Amos said, if you missed it. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. What had raised Amos's ire? How could God possibly be mad in such a time of blessing and prosperity? This is not what a king or a political leader wants to hear when the people seem prosperous and happy and satiated, at least those people that were worth noticing. For the poor or the migrant or the marginalized, life might not be good, but honestly, no one was paying attention to them then. Prosperity tends to only look at people at a certain level and up. In our culture, we call it the middle class. I don't know what the Israelites called it. The prosperity of Israel's middle class and their wealthy elite had made the Israelites complacent. Their religious practices were mixed the worship of God with idolatry, placing possessions and objects on the same level as God. And their religion was self-pleasing. It was designed to make them feel good about themselves, about what they had, about what they achieved, about what their blessings were. But it made them forget their social responsibility to those who were still in need, even, if this, even during this time of supposed plenty. Amos's message reached a high priest, an ally, a supporter of the king, And that priest confronts Amos directly, asking why he would be sharing a message of destruction in a time when Israel was displaying such wealth. According to this prosperity preacher, wealth was interpreted as a sign of God's blessing. And the priest eventually tells Amos that he should just go somewhere else to proclaim the word of God. Essentially, this message from the Lord is not welcome in this jurisdiction. And it is no better for John the Baptist. And this story, I think, is this illustration of a corruption of power and wealth and privilege. It demonstrates how power can make you do things against your better judgment. John had gotten arrested sometime after baptizing Jesus. He had warned that Herod should not marry his sister-in-law. Herod had publicly expressed that he admired John, calling him a righteous and a holy man. Maybe instead Herod was amused by John, or maybe he thought that having John around added to his stature. Of course, Herod's stated admiration of John didn't stop him from ignoring John's warning, and he still married his sister-in-law. So it might be more that Herod liked the idea of John than dealing with the actual real John the Baptist. Now, Herod's sister-in-law slash wife, Herodias, one of the few named women in the Gospels, didn't like having John around, reminding people that she had been passed or probably forcibly taken from one brother to another. She wanted him killed to shut him up. And Herod wants to keep the peace, at least peace for himself. Remember, Herod's choices are designed for self-preservation, self-promotion, and self-aggrandizing. He wants to keep his newly acquired wife. He wants to keep his entertaining and edifying prophet. And most of all, he wants to keep control 
over his wife, over his prophet, and over his country. And so as a compromise, Herod kept John alive, but in prison, until this lust for power ultimately traps him. When Herodias' daughter danced at Herod's birthday party, the scripture says that her dancing pleased Herod and his guests. It is possible that pleased is a euphemism for lusting after yet another member of his family. Or maybe Herod just likes showing off his family to make sure that everyone knows that he only has the best, the smartest, the most beautiful people as a part of his family. Whatever it is, Herod demonstrates his power, his wealth, and his supposed generosity by offering this girl whatever she wants, up to half his kingdom. This is an extremely lavish, but ultimately empty gesture. Herod is offering his wealth and yet keeping it very strategically within the family. If this girl were to ask for half of his kingdom, the kingdom still stays under Herod's rule. That pledge doesn't go to help any of the thousands of people for whom a fraction of that wealth could make the difference between life and death. And this is where Herod gets trapped because the girl consults her mother, who sees the opportunity to silence John the Baptist once and for all. And the request for, Herod's, for John's head cuts directly through Herod's grandiose and empty promises. Herod is now trapped by his own corruption. Does he lose power by refusing to honor his promise in front of all the elite and the powerful of the kingdom? Does he kill someone that he has publicly confessed and professed to admire? No matter what, Herod is going to go back on his word, and neither one of these is a good option. And in this calculation, Herod thinks that murder is the more honorable action. And then he commits the murder while keeping himself as far away as possible from all the blood and the trauma and the unpleasantness. He sends a soldier to go do his dirty work, both beheading John and delivering it not to him to present to the girl, but directly to the girl. I'm going to guess that Herod never actually sees John or his head after this incident. Herod wants to keep his good standing, and that good standing forces him to chicken out. But remember, this whole story was sparked. It's a flashback because Herod is paranoid that Jesus is really just John, risen from the dead, back to haunt him. And this is what power does to people. It makes them paranoid about how to keep that power and what threats to that power exist and how do they grasp it as much as possible. And now, this is not just a problem for kings or presidents, or governors, or senators, or representatives. I have seen ministers of the gospel get wrapped up in this same allure of power. Pastors who have dedicated their life to proclaiming the gospel, suddenly complaining that they no longer have the recognition they think they deserve. I've seen young activists get caught up in fame and brand building, sometimes making self-promotion and activism so indistinguishable from one another that you can't tell the difference. And if I really want to confess myself, I have seen this in myself a mere two weeks ago when I realized how jealous I was of an 11-year-old transgender girl who spoke on the stage at the ELCA National Youth Gathering. 
I know her. I know her parents. And I heard that everyone who heard her speak was touched and said that she, was, that she had a powerful message. But all I could think was, I want to be on that stage speaking to all those people. The idolatry of power afflicts each of us. And maybe like the Israelites, we don't want to disrupt our comfortable, middle-class lives to do the hard things that need to be done. People, we are, uh, we are concerned about power and status in society, sometimes more than the welfare of all God's people. It's a depressing sermon, isn't it? So where is the gospel in all of this? And I'll be honest, it's kind of hard to see. Two prophets confront powerful leaders and meet opposition that leads to banishment and death. Both of these prophets could have been doing something else, anything else, leading their quiet lives at home, away from the confrontation and the politics and the overall ickiness of their message and their proclamation. But they were called by God. And God's calling isn't always into what makes us happy. It is not always into what makes us rich. It is not into what makes us powerful. Sometimes that calling leads to suffering and even death. And if we, can, if we think that we can avoid suffering and death by not proclaiming the gospel, by not sharing the hard but necessary good news, then we are just as delusional as King Herod was. Because in Ephesians, we're reminded that we were created and chosen to carry God's message to those who need to hear it. The reality is that God is going to call us to share the gospel, not when it's convenient, but when it is necessary. Despite people saying things like, things are good, the stock market's high, why rock the boat? Despite it being considered uncivil to discuss religion and politics. Despite our fear of powerful people and their followers and however they might respond and what they might do to us. And we might be at a point today when we just don't want to engage, gracefully or otherwise. I've seen a lot of social media posts about unfriending those who share different political affiliations. And sometimes families hold the peace together by deciding not to talk about difficult things. And I really do understand that sentiment. But God continues to call each of us to reach out to our neighbor, to share a message of love, to share a message of hope, and sometimes to share a message of correction or confrontation. It is never easy, and it's never completely safe, but it is a calling from God that applies to each and every one of us, and we were made for a calling just like this. And for that, we can say, thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find us online at adventnyc.org. Our services are at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. in English and 12.30 p.m. in Spanish at 93rd and Broadway.